invited to Kids Church in the library with Kelly. We believe that God made good his promise by sending his son, Jesus Christ, a man born in the flesh, a Jew by tribe, born poor in a little village who left his home where he's always on safari doing good, curing people by the power of God, teaching about God and man, showing the meaning of religion is love. He was rejected by his people, tortured and nailed hands and feet to a cross, and he died he lay buried in the grave, but the hyenas did not touch him. And on the third day, he rose from the grave. He ascended to the skies. He is the Lord. Or if you prefer, in a more modern or older format, actually, less modern, we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, consubstantial of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us men and our salvation, he came down from heaven and by the Holy Spirit was incarnate of the Virgin Mary and became man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and his de the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. Two old readings, or one very old reading and one so not old reading. The first one um, was the Maasai Creed, which we sent out in the email earlier in the week. And, and what happened in this village in Africa in the 50s was they had been um, meeting with missionaries and building this church there. And they believed this missionary group that they should find a way to articulate the faith, the creed that they had been learning, perhaps in a way that made sense in their culture. And so we get things like he was always on safari, or the hyenas did not touch him as he went to the grave. And these are things, and, and the, the, we talked about this book already, but Yarslof Pelikan combined all the creeds that have been written that they could find into like five volumes, and it's $1,000 from Yale, if you want to buy them, Yale Press. Um, and this is one of his favorites, because it combines what does it mean to say the creed in your culture faithfully? Because, because there's another way in which you can say the creed in your culture, which is not faithful too. I believe that Jesus is the president, and he was always at the mall. Um, there are ways in which we can, we can say the creed, and it doesn't seem authentic to what we proclaimed before. So the second reading was from Nicaea, which is actually um, from the third or fourth century. This is the second or the first of the church councils that sort of hammers out what the church means when they proclaimed who Jesus is. So we have these sort of two creeds framing for us in this discussion of the Apostles' Creed this morning. Now this, this um, in the Greek here is the original Christian creed, and we talked about this. Uh, it, it, you can see it in Romans, too. In Romans, uh, it says, if you believe in your heart and confess that Christ is Lord. This is Jesus, Lord, in Greek. This is the first creed. And, and as we get to this, um, the middle of the Apostles' Creed this week, it's important to sort of keep in mind that the rest of the creed is sort of built around this section. 
the idea that Jesus is Lord, the idea that Jesus is God, is the first truth and the most paramount truth of what makes Christianity Christianity. I believe in God the Father and I believe in the Holy Spirit make up the critical points of this too. You can't, uh, even in the Jesus one, we have that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. We have that in the Jesus story already and it says that he's the only son of God which raises the question, who's his father? And we proclaim those things in the creed but what really takes root for the early Christian community is this confession that Jesus is Lord. So in the psalm David read for us, it talks about what it mean, meant for Israel to proclaim that God is Lord. Woe for those who, who, who look at idols and build these things with their hand because we know a God who is beyond that. We know a God who is Lord in a deeper way. We don't build idols to him. We don't even necessarily build temples to them. We don't have a king that sort of works for him, and, and, and this would be more typical of ancient Near East religions. What we have is a God who sort of stands behind it all, keeping it going, and has chosen us and revealed himself to us. This is the God that we proclaim as Lord faithfully as Israel, but it's also the God we claim as Lord today. In the reading that Buford read for us, there's this, there's this beautiful phrase about, what did the, the title is, The Humility of Christ, uh, imitating the humility of Christ. And yet it ends with that someday, every knee and every tongue shall bow and confess that this one is Lord. So that's a, you know, imitating the humility of Christ. Get low, because uh, you will be raised up. It's not exactly that way, but... But um, this idea of, of that this one is the one whom everybody will echo. This is the one through this confession which all of us will say that this is the Holy One of God. This is the one who is the Lord. We talked about this um, just recently. I can't remember which sermon series exactly, but, but this Greek phrase, Lord, up here, used in the Greek Old Testament, which we have copies of from around this time, is the same Lord in the word in the psalm. So when the early Christians go around proclaiming Jesus is Lord, if you see Lord in your Bible, if, if you have a Bible and you've never read the preface or the beginning, um, there's fascinating stuff in there. But one of the things that will tell you is that all, yeah, Shelley's like, really? How fascinating. Um, describe what fascinating means to you, Pastor Matt, um, because nobody else would find it that way. One of the interesting things that we'll talk about is its translation philosophy, but that's not what I mean. But, but some of these things, if you look in your Bible and you see all caps LORD all the time, um, what they're saying is they're translating the holy name of God that way. The phrase we use is Yahweh. And so when you see God in your Bible, G-O-D, and this is, I'm going with the general English translation rule here. You see God in your Bible, they're translating other words for God. Most often, Elohim, which is sort of this God of gods. Um, it's not the specific name for God. But when it uses L-O-R-D caps, it's telling you something specific. This is the name that God disclosed to Moses. This is the name that we guard. This is in, in Jewish culture, you don't say this name. You say Adonai in its place, which is, which is a way of naming this God without directly naming him. This is the one whom we call. And so when the early Christians began to say Jesus is Lord in the same way, it didn't take long to connect it to that Old Testament message. One of the things we haven't talked about in the Christian relationship to a creed is what we say is also telling us what we don't say. So when you say, I believe in God the Father, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, 
You're saying no to other things. Now, in the, in the ancient world in which Christianity was sort of birthed, there's this way in which you would say that Caesar is Lord. That was Caesar's common acclamation. You would come and say that Caesar is Lord. Well, the early Christians realized, well, if we say Christ is Lord, can we say Caesar is Lord? And they generally came to the conclusion that's not the way it works. And you see this in the Old Testament, too, is that, is that to call God Lord, to call God this one, relativizes all other power. It doesn't make it um, immune. Those powers still exist in the world. But in some sense, they're all subservient. They're all below this one you know as true Lord. And this gives people a boldness that you wouldn't think about. It gives them a way of saying that this is worth guarding. This is, you see it in the book of Daniel, if you're familiar with that, that they won't bow their knee and they won't. All these corners that you or I might cut because it seems practical and pragmatic to be a respectable person, um, they generally reject because they know one beyond that. They know the roots and the, 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 the truth of all things through calling this one Lord. And so for them to call Jesus Lord was to call, say that other things in relative status don't work that way. Brian, um, a couple weeks ago, asked about slavery in, in relationship to the Bible. And one of the things that you see in the early Christian communities is the confession that Jesus is Lord meant that nobody called master, slave master, could be master. And so it relativized the whole power structure of that relationship. You can't have other lords over you if you know this Lord. So it's in the third century you find people writing, this is one of the reasons why Christians maybe shouldn't have slaves, not individual rights or personal autonomy or something like that. But if we know the true Lord, and that's the one we all gather around, and he is over all this, then how could anyone else own another person when that Lord is over all? That's sort of the way they work through this. And so to call him Lord is to call him something greater. It's to call him uh, the thing beyond. What we find, and this is interesting, in the 1940s, uh, a German pastor says, Christ is my Fuhrer. Uh, Fuhrer is the name that they used for Adolf Hitler. He's the Fuhrer. And the German pastor says that Christ is my Fuhrer. You're not my Fuhrer. Christ is my Fuhrer. And you would think this is 1940s. People realize that, like, well, Christians are a little eccentric, this, that, and the other. He's actually taken to jail and, and put into a camp for this confession. We do live in a time where perhaps it's a little too easy to say that Christ is Lord. And, and because of that, we don't know what we're not saying, too. Because when you say Christ is Lord, there's a whole host of other things that now you're lowering in the ways. You're taking out of the picture. And so this uh, declaration that German pastors wrote in the 1940s confronting sort of the Nazi image, they wrote all this through, it's called the Barman Declaration, and it's, it's super interesting to read in the sense that it, it really just says, you say this, but we say Jesus is Lord. It says it like 10 times over and over again, that you say the German nation is the peak of all cultures, but we, what we say is Jesus is Lord. And this document, as it circulated throughout that world, one, didn't have much of an effect, but two, uh, was people who signed it were regularly round up and put in concentration camps. Because what they did was challenge the structures of the world in which they were in. Now this is, this is an interesting thing about this because 
it's not exactly clear that all of them knew when they signed this how bad Nazi Germany was going to be. I think we think, well, it's easy to confront Nazi Germany. But what they were doing is confronting the claims of their people, the claims of the people that they had been brought up in and in the good citizenry they'd been, they had given, and they were saying, that's all fine, but to raise it up to another level, to say it's good to be a German, to raise it up to say it's peak to be a German, it's best to be a German, is to minimize the claim that Christ has upon us. And this is what they did to sort of reclaim in their culture what it means to call Christ Lord. And so this Sunday we walk into that part of the creed, the, cre the creed that says, you know, we, and this is the way it is for us this Sunday, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. God's only Son, our Lord, is what we we proclaim this day, is that that's what we're considering. And what, what I was going to try and do as I was thinking about this was approach it in two halves. Um, actually, there's one other thing. Does, do people know this movie? Yeah, well, that just sounds like your opinion, man. Uh, can anybody, Ray, you seem like you could do a good impersonation of it. No. Uh, yeah, well, that's just like your opinion, man. Um, it's funny because in the modern world, let's say this is one thing for Christians to meet people who are like, I believe, Christ, yeah, sorry, not everybody knows this movie because it is not in many ways a good movie for Christians to watch. Um, it's called The Big Lebowski, um, and I, I don't love it. I like the guy in the back, Gary, uh, what's his name? His face is pretty epic in the scene. Yeah, well, that's just like your opinion, man. Um, what happens is, is that in the world, when we confront people with the name that I believe that Jesus is Lord, I say the creed every Sunday. This is where my allegiance lies. Most of the time, I think in this world, we'll meet people who say, yeah, well, that's just like your opinion, man. Um, and I think that's something worth thinking about. But I th the greater thing that concerns me and other pastors when we think about this is that, the, that Christians say, you know, I believe that Jesus is I believe in God the Father, the creator of everything, and I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, and I believe in the Holy Spirit, but that's just like my opinion, man. Like we relativize it ourselves. There's this way in which we say, you know, we live in a, um, a multifaceted culture with lots of different religions. We're more aware of the different religions, different groups, different sects of everything that sort of exists throughout the world. And so as Christians, we feel this temptation to sort of minimize this, to be like, this is what I believe. But, you know, that's just like my opinion, man. Um, and I've seen, and I'm probably myself, I've probably done evangelism like this. When somebody's like, you believe these things, what do you say? And it's like, well, yeah. You know, when somebody gets really antsy, you kind of default back to if you're not on top of it. Now they add, but that's just like my opinion, man. I'm better than this today. Um, but I think that that's part of the struggle we have is that we, too, don't want to full throated to say that I believe in Jesus Christ, the Lord, God's only son. But what it means to be a Christian is to have this confession take hold of your life, to orient you in a different way, to bring you into different places. And it's interesting to note that, that what stands at the center of the Christian faith is not a theory or a truth or anything, but what stands at the center of Christian faith is a person. And so we, we, in modern sort of evangelism and apologetics, we make a problem so that Jesus can solve it. But what is more true is that Jesus stands there as the way that he is. And when you begin to know Jesus, when you begin to know the light of Christ, the darkness of your own sin may come upon you. 
But it's through knowing Jesus, it's through knowing this person who stands at the center of our faith that we begin to make those conclusions ourselves. You're not projected just something out there. It, Christ just isn't a theory for us. It goes deeper than that. It's, it's a relationship to a living person that we proclaim. So that's the big Lebowski. Are they? It's been a long time. Like, who is Jesus in that frame? Some guy dressed as Jesus? Oh, and his name is, he's the one who's kind of a jerk, right? Yeah. Um, I do remember that guy because he is pretty much unforgettable if you've seen the movie. Um, I didn't know his name was Jesus. <laughs> um, uh, so, and this is the way, this is, does anybody remember Christopher Hitchens who died a couple years ago, famous atheist? Um, uh, well known. But he was having this interview with somebody at, with a magazine in Portland, and, it, and the person says to them, the religion you cite in your book is generally fundamentalistic faith of various kinds. I'm a liberal Christian, and I don't take the stories from Scripture literally. I don't believe the doctrine of the atonement, that Jesus died for our sins, for example, do you make any distinction between fundamentalist faith and liberal religion? Christopher Hitchens replies to him, I would say that you don't believe that Jesus of Nazareth was the Christ and Messiah and that he rose from the dead. I would say that if you don't believe that Jesus of Nazareth was the Christ and the Messiah and that he rose from the dead and by a sacrifice our sins are forgiven, you're not really in any meaningful sense a Christian. Which is... This is an atheist sort of calling this guy out. He's not a believer himself. This guy, I don't know, doesn't quite get it, so he says, let me go someplace else. When I was in seminary, I was particularly drawn to the work of the, of the theologian Paul Tillich. He shocked people by describing the traditional God, as you might say as a matter of fact, as an invisible tyrant. For Tillich, God is the ground of our being. It is response to, to, say, Freud's belief that religion is mere wish fulfillment and comes from human's fear of death. What do you think of Tillich's concept of God? Hitchens replies, I would classify that under the, the heading statements that have no meaning <laughs> at all. Christianity, remember, was founded by St. Paul, and I would disagree with him by this, but not Jesus. But Paul says very clearly that if it is not true that Jesus rose from the dead, then we then the Christians are the most are the, the people to be the most unhappy. If it's not true and you seem to say it isn't, I have no quarrel with you. You're not going to come to my door trying to convince me, nor are you trying to get a tax break from the government, nor are you trying to have it taught to my children at school. If all Christians were like you, I wouldn't have to write this book. And so this is a it's helpful to hear this from somebody like Christopher Hitchens for me and from others is that as you try to think, well, I'm enlightened and this complaint isn't against me in some ways. It's helpful for somebody sometimes to name, in what meaningful sense are you a Christian? If I believe I know the Son of God through, through that personal relationship, the song we sang today, which uh, people came to me and, and, and acted like I wasn't aware that it's an old 80s hymn song. It is but it is a great song. I believe that he is here now, standing in our midst, with the power to heal now and the grace to forgive. I believe that that is in this space, and yet that's just my opinion. It takes somebody like Hitchens to point out, in what sense, in meaningful sense, are you a member of this thing that's lasted 2,000 years? 
In what sense does this take traction in your life? And now, I don't think it has to take traction in our life in the same way it does, um, I'll just pick on somebody in general, Pat Robertson. Um, But it does need to take traction in your life. It does need to, as a confession, sort of have teeth in its way. It needs to change something. It needs to bring us into practice. And so what I originally thought of when we were approaching this point in the creed, I thought we'd look at what's sort of described in the reading that, that Buford read for us, is that there's this dissension in Christ. Christ is with God, and yet he doesn't consider equality with God with something to be grasped, but he becomes a slave. He becomes a servant and goes to the lowest point, and the lowest point being death on a cross. And through that death on a cross, through being obedient unto death, he is then raised up again. He's raised up into life with God. And I thought, okay, well, if we're going to do this part of the creed, which has a lot in it, I mean, there's, um, uh, it covers pretty much the whole scope of the gospel with one notable exception. Um, there's a lot in there, and nobody wants to hear me preach for four hours. So how am I going to do this? We'll, we'll just do it in halves. But the interesting part was that the halves, if you think about them maybe clearly, are infused with each other. There isn't clear that one is just all dissension and one is all just good. So if you look at it in the creed, not the creed, the creed, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit. In his coming down to us, there's this description of being conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of a virgin. That his his sort of nature of becoming human actually comes in a way that also comes with divine. And his being um, raised up and and, and visiting the dead is is this other thing that also comes with this infused sort of glory and divine. And it shouldn't shock me that this is this way because this is one of the things the creed was trying to protect. We say the phrase that God is fully human and fully man, or fully human and fully God, sorry. Um, God is this one who is, is full of divinity and full humanity meeting together in the flesh. That this is God sort of becoming concentrated in the world is what we sort of say as Christians classically. And, and what that means is we could take various ways to sort of talk about it. But what does it mean is that he is fully that at all times. That Christ comes as one who is fully God. He doesn't put his Godhead aside. And so we have these early Christian heresies, and they, and they creep into our lives today. Um, the one that sort of wants to make Jesus more God than human. And the question that the Bible asks of that in, in both Hebrews and other places is, is what, what help would it be to have a God who didn't suffer in the ways that we suffer, who didn't face temptation in the ways that we face temptation? No, this has to be a real human. That's going too far to make him only God who visits us. And then we have on the other side this, this notion that wants to make God just fully human. He's a moral example for us. He points the way to a better life. And what the early Christians say, both in the Bible and in, in, um, in the creed, is that no, that would be of no help to us. If he's just the best human there ever was, how is he going to, to heal? How is he going to have the power to heal now and the grace to forgive? He just becomes an example. He becomes um, you know, something to follow, but he doesn't have the power to sort of raise us up into new life. And so what they were guarding in this this section of the creed is being able to say both halves of that, that God is this fully human, fully divine person who lives and dwells amongst us and is raised up 
fully human divine and sits at the right hand of the Father. That this is the relationship we have to Jesus in the creed. Trying to think, running out of time, what to hit. Or just go back to the big Lebowski. Um, so it, the creed names a couple things here. The one is conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. Um, conceived of the Holy Spirit should remind us of God's creative activity in Genesis. If you want to understand this part, which seems hard for us moderns, it's easy to understand. It might be easier to look back into the Bible. And so what happens when God's Spirit breathes over the waters that creation happens? To say that, that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit means that he was created by God in some ways, that he was, he was um, made by God to be this new creation in the world. Uh, to say that he was born of the Virgin Mary is this uh, instance of sort of thinking about, one, this is where the humanity steps in, but also um, God throughout his pattern in the Old Testament is taking places where children shouldn't be and putting children there. You think of Abraham and Sarah or, or um, uh, Hannah and Samuel and uh, that family and uh, you know all these sort of instances of people who can't have kids and God gifting them with kids. God's pattern is overcoming that limit to make something so that we know it comes from God. The interesting twist with, with the Virgin Mary is that instead of old infertileness, it comes in, in a young teenager. It comes in a young woman in that form. And that... There's all sorts of ways that su could suggest new creation and new life. Um, but the, the, that's just, I don't know why. I thought it would be helpful to think about that. Here's the next question, uh, which I had these reversed, and I'm luckily I double-checked it. Is there are two historical figures in the creed outside of Jesus, which is always interesting to me. There's Mary and there's Pilate. And, and Carl uh, Barth says that, that when you read Pilate's name in the creed, it's like a dog crept into a room that he's not supposed to be in. It's like... Why is Pontius Pilate in the creed? He suffered under Pontius Pilate. Was that a necessary inclusion? To, I mean, Pilate, uh, like many of you know, I majored in history. Some nerdy U.S. history or world history major might know who he is without the creed. But because of the creed, everybody for the past 2,000 years has said his name almost every Sunday, which seems like a high place for the person who put Jesus on the cross for the person who condemned him to death. And depending on which gospel you're in, it varies sort of the answer to that. But, but Pilate seems like a weird spot in the creed. And I think there's two reasons for that. The first is that names the historical reality of what this is, this faith. The f faith just didn't take place in heaven. This faith just isn't a myth. This faith isn't just a legend that we've been told over and over again, like um, the way King Arthur functions. This, this faith, this person, Jesus Christ, was really in uh, the first century in Judea, and he really did meet this person who was the sort of governor of that region, Pontius Pilate. Without Pilate in there, and I think, Mary, you could maybe switch into the category of legend if you really wanted, but without Pilate, the whole thing could be like, oh, it's just like every other religion. It's sort of just a narrative story that you tell over and over again. But Pilate's inclusion there makes it, like, very real. It's... um. If you told a story about a really great person and a God who lived in, um, under the time of, of well, this, we, this happens with Americans with Johnny Appleseed and Paul Bunyan. Like, but if we had said, and then he met with Harry S. Truman or something like that, it would give a real, like, well, let's find that out, right? Let's see if that happened. And that's sort of what happens here with this part of the creed. 
But the second reason I think it's in there is what we have is in Mary in, in this Advent, I tried to give a sermon that reframed a positive relationship with Mary for Protestants. Because Protestants, I think, are so afraid of if we say things of Mary, um, that even scripture says of Mary, that we'll become Catholics someday and end up worshiping her as co-redeemer, um, which they don't, but that's neither here nor there. Protestants have this concern about calling Mary the things that even scripture calls of Mary. And, and I think if we're, we're going to helpfully think about her here, she becomes our um, great-great-grandmother in the faith. What you have with Jesus is somebody who says yes to Jesus, and that's the story that Brian read for us during the worship set. This this teenager, um, not married yet, says yes to having Jesus come into the world. And that's the means by which he comes into this space, her yes. What we have in Pilate is this person who says no to Christ who says that this is not the way it is, that this one goes to the cross. And what it brings for us is, is first that Mary is our great-grandmother in the faith and that she says yes, and so we too say yes to God. But it also puts us in, a, I hope, a modest spot um, that humanity, in its wisdom, couldn't handle God when it got gross and pushed him to the, to the cross, is that, is that no resides within our grasp as well. It would be easy if the creed didn't acknowledge the no at all. Just a good life to proclaim this thing. But the no always resides within humanity's grasp, the same way that the yes always resides within our grasp. And it's through these two figures that we can find ourselves saying yes to God. We can find ourselves also in our no's too. And this is the relationship that they have to Jesus in the creed. My goal was to make it to buried today, but I don't think we're going to make it that far. Uh, the last thing that I would say um, for today is, is this phrase, suffered under Pontius Pilate. Um, I want to focus on suffered just for one second. It's a common complaint of the creed that it doesn't include any of Jesus' ministry time, if you haven't noticed that yet. Um, Jesus is born of the Virgin Mary, and the next thing he does is he suffers under Pontius Pilate. A long gap there. Um, most Christians would say about 33 years, um, of which we know nothing of what happens. Why is why is the creed leave this big gap there? Um, and what are the problems that come when you le leave that big gap there? The first sort of answer to this is the creed is never meant to replace the Gospels. It's meant to give us the conditions and the lens by which we read the Gospels. Does that make sense? Is that it's not meant to sort of take away the four Gospels that we have. It's meant to put us in the mindset of what are we looking at when we look at Jesus' activity on here on earth. This, and it names helpfully for us that this is the God who's fully, he's God's son. He's uh, been conceived in this way. He's divine. He's human. It's, it's what the creed sort of does, and it gives us the lens by which we can read the Gospels. The second sort of answer to this question is that Paul largely doesn't talk a lot about Paul uh, Jesus' ministry time at all. And it's, that, that seems like, well, that's Paul, and some people don't like Paul. And I think, learn to like Paul, that would be good, because I think he's very important for us. But the bigger thing is, is that what the early church really knew about Jesus is that I believe he is here now, standing in our midst. That he has come and they've had a living relationship with this one. And so what he did in his life 
fa- uh, fades in Paul's messages because he, Paul sees that you can know Christ now. You can learn from him now. You can follow his pattern now. And if his life and ministry was that great and he dies the way that he died, he's worth forgetting in some ways because he needed to be raised from the dead to really know him. And this is... Um, this, I think, is a true thing worth considering, is that without the resurrection, Jesus would be a blip in history. There are two other, three other people who sort of try to be Jesus-like messiahs during this time. One of them is named Jesus, and two of them are named Judas, which I always find funny. Uh, they didn't have a lot of differences in names in the ancient Near East, but, but that's comical to me. Like, he would be remembered as these two Judases and this one other Jesus. Like, it's important that he raises from the dead because that's how we are here today. Without that, he'd be remembered as much as they are. And the final thing is I think that the early church tried to capture in this one phrase, suffered, what it meant for him to become human. It's not like he um, came and he was like, oh, this body stinks and I don't really like it that much, so I suffer here. I think what Jesus found in his bodily form and what they capture and suffered is that he's always being pushed out of the world from the time he comes. Who is this Jesus of Nazareth? Do something to prove you're miraculous. Do something. He comes to an unbelieving space. He comes into darkness, and the darkness tries to overcome him as the light of the world. So I think that if we look at suffered, we can see how it's trying to encapsulate all of the Jesus story in there because for the most part, nobody believed him. Nobody really followed him. He had 12 and, and some bands, but they seemed to vary and go and come and go as he's doing good things. And yet when he goes to the cross, he's largely there alone, except for maybe John and some women in the distance and his mother. Like He's very isolated in the world. And that his whole existence is not rough because he takes on a human body. God created these bodies, and they were meant to be good. His whole existence in human, I think, is rough. is because he came to what's supposed to know him, and they knew him not. When he teaches us, when he shows us the way and supposed to be in the world, he's proclaiming what God proclaims is true, that this is the way it's supposed to be. And every time we disbelieve him, and every time they disbelieved him, that was suffering. That Christ suffered there. And the suffering peaks in his suffering under Pontius Pilate, in which he is crucified as a slave in the most shameful way, died and is buried and laid in a grave. Let us pray. God, we see that you have come to us, that your son has taken up residency in the world he made a home among us. And we proclaim him this day and all days as Lord, Lord of our lives, Lord of the world, in a way that goes beyond our opinion or preference. So we pray that that would take root in our lives, that we, like Mary, would say yes to who Jesus is for us. And yet we know that you came in suffering and in sin and and into a sinful place. We see the ways in which you are beaten and abused and pushed to the margins. It happens today as it happened then. 
And yet the good news for us as Christians, as we proclaim you as Lord, is that you've risen from the grave. You've raised up into new life. You're seated at the right hand of the Father. And the world, in the phrase of Nicaea, that you are doing will have no end. Be with us here and now as we proclaim you as Lord and God's Son.